Please pronounce your name correctly for me. My name's Colby Caldwell. And you and I sort of like, you know, have been near each other for a while. Like we both went to the Corcoran and we both been around there. Correct. And so, But I don't quite honestly know too much about you. I know you have a, a lot of your work is about family and the memory of, I think it's your father. Is that correct? Grandfather grandfather um, it's because I remember seeing your first exhibition at Hemphill which was about the hunting correct that was well that was probably my that was the first exhibition you saw but it was probably my fifth exhibition at Hemphill oh, oh wow okay <laughs> yeah my first exhibition at Hemphill was in 1993 I was actually his first show first show at his gallery in Georgetown so I'm one of the early uh, original artists there Okay, well, I'm going to jump straight into my first question because sure. George Hemphill, love that man. Like, <laughs> I, I, he to me, he was like the most revered of all galleries in the D.C. area, and you got in there somehow very early and mm -hmm. made a really strong relationship with him. H how did that come about? Well, as you as you mentioned, I went to the Corker and I graduated in the Corker in 1990, and I actually had gotten my first solo show at Kathleen Ewing Gallery, 1989. Uh, I was still a student at the Corcoran, and she asked if I would be interested in being having a show of my work in December, January, 1988-89. And it was with one of my faculty, Claudia Smurgrad. She was in that, she was in the show. So I started showing with Kathleen Ewing while I was a student, which was a little unusual. And at the time, I didn't grasp maybe the political complications of that within my own peer group and also with my fact, my, my professors who I was now <laughs> showing with. But that being said, I stayed, I showed with Kathleen from about 1989 to about 1992, 93. And Kathleen, of course you may, and I'm just giving you some backstory on this. So you understand Kathleen, you know, was one of the original, one of the first, if not the first photo gallery in DC. She was around, she was a well-established. She was, she kind of ran APAD for years and years and years, she was kind of the contact. And she was, uh, her gallery was what you would call the classic atelier. It was on Connecticut Avenue, but it was an old brownstone kind of vibe. And when you went into her space, it was like going to someone's living room. You know, it was very, except, you know, someone's living room that had August Sander, Lizette Modell, you know, <laughs> some incredible 20th century photographers. And she was an amazing woman herself in many ways, but her space was very family oriented, very kind of casual. She smoked in the gallery at that time. And it was kind of a gallery where a lot of the DC photographers, especially the Corcoran photographers showed. Yeah. Frank showed there as well. Frank showed there. Steve Zabo showed there. Mm -hmm. uh, Claudia showed there. Mark Power showed there. So, you know, it was, it was kind of the, a, a really wonderful opportunity for me. And I was really fortunate to get that opportunity. And I was right right there. But after graduating from the Corcoran, my work started shifting a little bit from being kind of your traditional wet darkroom, black and white prints that were matted and framed with aluminum frames. I started thinking about presentation more. My work started getting a little bigger and my presentation started changing. And her space was, was smallish. It was kind of a traditional gallery, but it was kind of a, like I said, it was like going into someone's living room. And so I started sensing my work wasn't going to translate so well in that space. And around that time, George Hemphill, who had been working at Middendorf, and he was the photography curator there uh, in the 80s, he had uh, 
through a series of events, which we do not need to get into, Mindorf closed and he decided to open his own gallery himself down in Georgetown. This was in the mid, this was in the early nineties. If you can imagine, this was actually a time when all the galleries were starting to close in DC because of the economy. And he actually was opening up a gallery down in Georgetown of all places where none of the galleries were. All the galleries were situated at that time around DuPont Circle, R Street uh, area in, in, uh, in DC. And he, this is a pretty good story if you want to hear it. <laughs> Do I'm just sitting here literally going down like nostalgic lane, thinking of all these different places in DC. So, oh yeah, I mean around Dupont Circle. There, I mean it was actually just a uh, another slight tangent. DC was an incredible photography city in a sense because uh, and Dupont Circle had Joe Tart who showed Sally Mann early on, Joel Peter Witkin, Anne Roland early on. A lot of early, you know, a lot of photographers who were just breaking into the big time. He brought them into in DC. There was Jones Troyer, who showed uh, a lot of European photographers like Arnef Rainier and a lot of the German photographers at the time who were doing really experimental work. And as a student, it was just like you had, you had Kathleen Ewing showing like August Sander and all the kind of historical work. You had Joe Tart showing the kind of contemporary and what's happening in the 80s work. And then you had you know, Jones Troyer showing all this amazing work from Europe, and it was just a goldmine for a student. So as I was saying, George broke off from Middendorf, and he had been showing Kristen Berry, Joe Mills, who was a DC-based photographer, and other photographers, and he decided to open his own space up down in Georgetown on 33rd Street. And he started going around and asking folks if they'd be interested in being in the, in the gallery, and he invited me over to his apartment at the time, which is where the gallery was situated before he opened the physical space over at Chinatown. It was a gold, It was in this goldsmith framing building or whatever. Anyway, it was a cool little loft place that he and his wife lived in. And he was operating out of there until the space was ready in Georgetown. He asked me if I'd bring a portfolio of prints over because he had a collector that'd be interested and drop them off on Friday and I could pick them up on Monday if, uh, and he'd let me know what happened. And I was like, sure. And I told Kathleen I was going to drop this off. And she was like, it was pretty casual back then. She's like, whatever. Okay. And I dropped them off on Friday. I got a call on Monday morning. He said, come pick up your portfolio. And I was like, okay. I borrowed my roommate's car. So this would have been a 92, 93. Borrowed my roommate's car. I didn't have a car at the time. Drove to his place, walked up to the door, knocked on the door. He opened the door and he had a brown paper bag full of cash. And he said, I made some sales over the weekend. Congratulations. And, he, and then he said, would you like to work with me? And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, because you got, you know, I've been out of the corking for two years. I was probably eating beans and rice three, you know, five nights a week. I was like, this was like, oh my God. And uh, I was like, uh, yeah, I'd be interested in working with you. I'm going to open up a gallery. I'd like for you to be, you know, one of our first artists. And I've got a show planned in September. I'd like for you to do it, but you'll have to, uh, you'll have to leave Kathleen. You'll have to, you know, leave Kathleen and come with me. And I was like, you know, I was 24, 25. And I was like, okay, sure. That's why I, I had no written contract with Kathleen, nothing. And I also felt my time with her was changing. So I went to Kathleen. I said, George has invited me to be in his new gallery. I'm going to do that. And she was not very happy. <laughs> which is fair enough because I could have done, I should have, I should have done better about the politics of that in the sense that when I borrowed, when I took the portfolio to George, I should have made it clear to her that he was, you know, he was trying to sell the work and something was going on. And I, I was clueless, but I, I should have known. 
and she was not that happy, but we patched, we made friends. We had, it was too small of a scene. Uh, she understood that I was kind of moving in a different direction. I had my first show with George, I believe it was 93. He had a group show that opened the gallery in September. And then it was 93. Yeah. And oh, then- no, I, I'm thinking through my own timeline. <laughs> I'm like, was I there in 93? Because I grew up in Arlington. Oh, right. Uh, so I'm actually from the area. So like, it's possible I could have seen some of this stuff before I went away to college and before I came back to the Corcoran. But no, that would have fallen in that gap when I was not in D.C. I think my show opened in, I'm going to say October, November, my first show with him, which was still black and white work and still kind of vestiges of what I'd been kind of investigating uh, my last year at the Corcoran and then first couple of years after. So I've been with him almost 30 years. It's going on 28 some years. And, you know, George and I are like family at this point. And I, I think we've hung up on each other at least five times each, <laughs> you know, as, as one does when you're dealing with these kind of things. But he's like family and he's been, uh, I mean, it, it, all you gotta do is just look at the landscape right now in DC. There's no, no one still standing. I mean, he's, he's been able to not only continue to operate at a high level, he's been able to change with the times. I mean, he's moved galleries. This will be his third gallery, just opened up, as you know, right as the pandemic hit, which is another story, of course. He just opened up his new space. Uh, he moved from 14th Street down toward Union Station corridor where all that stuff is opening up. And he just keeps reinventing himself. Yeah, I have not been to DC in probably 15 years at this point. So I, I've not been keeping up with him. But I do follow him on social media. So like, I do know that he recently moved. I just didn't know where. So... Yeah, I mean, I saw I, last time I saw Hemphill would have been at the 14th Street Gallery, and I believe it was right around when he opened up the 14th Street Gallery. It was probably the last time I was there. Yeah, you said 15 years. That's about right. I believe if okay. I'm not if I'm not mistaken, 2005. That, that's you know what? It's actually you probably were there around the time he opened up, which was it was 2005. Would have been, yeah. Yeah, that's what About it would have been. Yeah, 15 yep. years from now, yeah. It's been a long time since I, because my family moved away from D.C., so like I have no reason to go back to D.C. anymore. Right, right, right. Except for the free museums. That's a nice reason. I love them. Are you kidding? <laughs> I worked at the Smithsonian when I was right. in high school. I loved it. Right, right. It's the best. I mean, that's probably a, a big factor in why I'm in the the creative industries, just the access to the Smithsonian. The access was incre- is incredible. It's a it's a resource that a lot of folks take for granted there. I think I did. I mean, I did a I did a internship when high school at the Natural History Museum. Oh sure. And and, uh, and the guy who was in charge of me, Bob Viola, Bill Viola, Bob Viola, I can't remember. He he let me in the the archive rooms and he just like he was just like yeah have fun just go look at things and i just got to go like pull open drawers and unlock cabinets and go oh through goodness. their entire collection it was ridiculous i'm sure they wouldn't allow it anymore but at the <laughs> time it was great yeah i love it but all right so then you graduated from the corker and then you 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 were teaching at the corker and then at some point uh, for a little while when I graduated from the Corkin in 90, my first job was as a photography assistant for Lisa Berg, who was a freelance photographer who did a lot of work. He was a, she, she did a lot of work for the New York Times. She did work for various other news organizations, but she also did a whole lot of work, editorial work. And she also worked for the DNC, which was uh, where most of the excitement happened for me on the job, getting to be amongst, amongst all that. So I worked with her from 1990 to 1990, I want to say 1997. 
worked with her for seven years. And at the same time, I was also part-timing at Smash Records down in Georgetown. I worked with Bobby Polsky uh, there and also worked at his DuPont Circle location. And then the Corcoran came, you know, came and asked if I'd be interested in adjuncting a class in the summer, teaching a photography class. And I, I'm, I'm thinking it was 97. It may have been 96. And it slowly went from teaching one class to two classes. And then by 1999, I was teaching three and three. I was teaching three classes in the fall, three classes in the spring. And I was working with, you know, third year and fourth year uh, students for, you know, in the, the old studio model they had where there'd be three faculty members working with, you know, you know the deal. <laughs> I do. I was yeah. there. Yeah. You were there. So I worked there and then I worked there at the Corcoran for almost, yeah, three years as an adjunct. Yeah. I was in that weird fluke year where we only had four photography graduates. Ah, right. The, the yes. one like the year before us, it was like 20. The year after us, it was like 20. But for some reason, my semester was only four. Right. And I, you know, I, they had the interesting thing they did with me, which I found and has been very kind of in retrospect, pretty uh, formative was that I actually taught both in the photography area. And this is back when these programs were quite separate. I taught in the photography program and the fine arts program. So I got to work with, you know, fine arts students, which include sculpture, painting, drawing, and what have you. And then I got to work with the photography students as well. And so it really, you know, it helped me uh, broaden as a photography major at the Corcoran when I was there. It helped me broaden my understanding of different studio practices in a way that different disciplines, different mediums worked quite differently in, in the studio, depending on what their interests were. And it helped me kind of understand that a lot more. Back then, that's when photography was still kind of barely getting, you know, seen as on the same level as quote unquote, fine arts, because it was separated into that. And there was not that big boom in the late 90s, 2000s, when photography kind of hit the scene big time with like Gers Andre Gursky and the whole, all those German big photographer folks that kind of open that up. And so it was still kind of photography was kind of still, you know, well, literally it was in the bottom basement back corner. Yeah, the <laughs> farthest bar back bottom place. Right. The, the only people that were farther down, I think were sculpture was in the absolute right. basement. basement. <laughs> exactly. but, but yeah, we were, I remember we, like I always had to walk, walk from the security guard. You had to walk the farthest distance exactly. to get to the photography studios. <laughs> exactly. So, so you know, for me, uh, it was great to kind of like, you know, before before things shifted in the art world per se. You know, I got to kind of see that the two the disciplines were really starting to all come together as, as just one, just as art making. That the the kind of old silo way of thinking about art making and that photographers, printmakers, painters, sculptors, and then of course. In the late 90s, early 2000s, the digital element started to come into it. That's a whole nother deal. You know, it, it slowly became just one, you know, you realized it was just one way, you know, it was making, but just different methods. Teaching of it should not be so siloed off into like you deal with photography and you only deal with sculpture and you only deal with painting. It was, it was, it allowed the faculty, I think, at a certain point to start understanding that actually photography faculty may have something interesting to add to painting or sculpture faculty, you know, it might be an interesting, the critique was far more rigorous and far more kind of, let's say, provocative when different disciplines were actually together talking about things instead of being separated off and navel gazing, basically, about your own discipline all the time. 
Oh, yeah. When I left, I actually ended up going to my master's program at the San Francisco Art Institute, and I got accepted as a photography major. But then I got there, and, and to a certain extent, what you're talking about, this siloing, this sort of like photographers on photographers kind of issue kept coming up. So I transferred, and I ended up doing my education there in new genre art. So it was all interdisciplinary. I mean, like right. in any given critique, like we'd be sitting there critiquing a performance piece and in the room there would be a sculptor a painter a printmaker a photographer all trying to figure out how to discuss art not a particular medium because we all worked in different mediums but we just had to learn how to talk about anything uh in the the context of art and it was a fabulous education i mean, i think it's the it's the only way at this point but yeah. agree I'm, I'm on your side so then you went on. Now you, I remember, I remember back at the Corcoran when I was all young, and you got the job at St. Mary's, right? And and and, and then it sort of like you sort of left my radar at that point because more or less you left the DC scene kind of thing, and so you went off to St. Mary's. So what was St. Mary's all about? I, from what I remember, it was a preparatory school. I'm not. No, even... no, it's actually the um, okay. So St. Mary's College of Maryland is the honors college of the University of Maryland system. So it's a small liberal arts college. It's about 2,000 students. has a uh, great reputation. It certainly did at the time when I was entering there. It's always in the top one or two of U.S. News and World Report public uh, liberal arts colleges. It was, you know, and it was a liberal arts college, which was very different than the context of the Corcoran because the Corcoran was just art college. But I had gone to Appalachian State University here in North Carolina uh, in Boone because I grew up here in Mills River, Asheville area. I went there for three and a half years before I transferred to the Corcoran. And so I understood the, you know, what that kind of community context of a, of, of a liberal arts college. But of course, upstate was like twelve to 14,000 students. St. Mary's was 2,000 students. The Corcoran was like 500 students. So, you know, it was, uh, they, were, they, were, they all had their very different flavors and feelings. But, but ultimately, the liberal arts context, understanding what that meant, especially within an art department, ended up becoming far more interesting and, and, and ultimately satisfying place to teach because you had folks in your class from all disciplines, history, science, English, you know, social, uh, you know, sociology, all, and, and they brought all sorts of cool, interesting perspectives, especially during discussions and critiques, you know, that art students would just be just quoting art form all the time, where these folks were talking about things that were going on, you know, <laughs> in the world, in the real world. And so it was a, a very different place. But I went down there as on a one-year a one year teaching possibility. Uh, and I, I just figured at this point, this was, was 2002. I went down there on a one-year teaching uh, gig because I wanted to, it was time for a change. I'd been in D.C. since 1987. I transferred up to the, to the Corcoran from App State in 1987. And I'd been in D.C. for 10, 15 years at that point. And I was just ready for a change. And let's be honest, the pay <laughs> as an adjunct at the Corcoran, for, and I was teaching full time, basically I was teaching three and three. The pay was pretty tough. I was still having a very tough time living in DC on, on what they were paying me. So here came St. Mary's offering a, a one-year gig at a pretty significant jump in salary with no guarantees. But I was like, I'm just going to do this. And whatever happens afterwards happens. And fortunately, I gave up my, I actually sublet my apartment uh, in DC to Jason Gubiati for the year, just in case. 
I didn't want to give up my apartment. I had a great corner apartment at the uh, corner of 16th in New Hampshire, right downtown DC, right at, right there. So I didn't want to give that up unless I knew for sure I was gone for good. And I went down to St. Mary's, taught there for the year, and then they offered up a tenure track position in that same position. And I interviewed for it, and I I got it. And I was I got I was there for 12 years, and loved it. I loved every I loved every minute of it pre tenure. Post tenure, I was looking for a way out. <laughs> wait, what? Oh, wait, that—that's totally the opposite of it the is. way it should be. Right. What? Uh, please, I mean, keep in mind, I—I'm also a professor now, right. and I've been teaching right. for the past like 10, 15 years. Yes. So, like, tell me, like, that is so wrong. It is <laughs> wrong, right? No, I know. And, and actually, when I resigned from my my teaching gig in twenty thirteen you know, most people said I was committing suicide, you know, basically committing uh, professional suicide, you know, uh, yeah. and, and, uh, and I, you know, and I, well, I mean, to be honest about it, you know, for me teaching, I never went into, I mean, I, I'm not certain, uh, I'm not sure about your story, but I didn't really go in, I didn't go to the Corcoran to, to start my track to teaching. I went there to be, to become a practicing artist, right? When I graduated from the Corcoran, I didn't really think of teaching as an option. I just thought, I just didn't think that would be an option or nothing I really pursued, but I kind of fell into it as one does. And I found that I enjoyed the teaching aspect of it, but I didn't enjoy how little you got paid to do it as an adjunct. And so when I got, when I got hired on the tenure track line at St. Mary's, it was obviously significant pay. First time I had health insurance, you know, in my adult life, you know, and all the things that came with it, which ultimately you found is why they call it the golden handcuffs. <laughs> because, you know, I had all the, the quality of life that, you know, the American dream that they everyone keeps propagating. That's, that's very important. And I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not saying that I did not enjoy that aspect of it. I, I found that, you know, I got, I got a physical for the first time, you know, all that, <laughs> all these things that, you know, you're just like, Oh, I have health insurance. I'll just get everything checked. You know, I, you know, so my point is, is that teaching though was my, the reason I went into it. And, and when I started at, when I left the Corcoran digital, the digital darkroom, the, the computer in the classroom was just really becoming a very big presence. When I went to the, when I got hired at St. Mary's for the full-time gig, I got hired as a photography digital media professor. And it was the first time that they were establishing whatever that was. And really, at the time, it was more about the idea of digital imaging. I know it was dealing with that aspect of it. So I was teaching both wet darkroom and quote unquote digital darkroom with, with some design, you know, stuff thrown in there to uh, to kind of fill out whatever digital media looked like at the time. And so I had to kind of develop an entire new curriculum and figure all that stuff out, which I had to do on the fly with some help from friends in DC who had better understanding of that. And I just loved it. I mean, I loved. I love the teaching. I love figuring out the classroom situation. I love the facility aspect of it, of trying to figure out how all that would work. And I enjoyed the colleagues. I enjoyed uh, teaching with the liberal arts kind of milieu where you could go to lectures at 4.30 on 11th century Chinese, whatever, or you could go to the cafeteria would serve South American cuisine because of some guest that was on campus from somewhere. You know, it's just the school was, you know, the liberal arts aspect of it was really interesting to me. It was fun being around different colleagues from different disciplines. And I loved the teaching aspect of it. But, and I worked my butt off to get tenure. And as we all, if you understand, you understand that, I suspect. And I, you know, my file for tenure was, I don't know, I literally like two files that were about 10 inches thick. You know, <laughs> I'm just like 
stuff you had to do. This was pre doing it online like they do it now. And I worked very hard to get it. And keep in mind, I did not have a master's. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I did not have a master's, which was very, very unusual. So my provost had to sign a piece of paper saying that my world, my, my, my experience, my world experience, the 10 years I was out in the wild before I came to St. Mary's after I graduated constituted a master's degree. Uh, and honestly, yeah, real world equivalent real, experience. Yes, exactly. And honestly, you know, it, it did in some ways, right? Maybe in ways that even a master's wouldn't have facilitated. So, so I was fortunate. I mean, I was the only, only tenured professor at that college that didn't have a master's, much less a doctorate. Most of them had doctorates. I remember at Corcoran, <laughs> there was a printmaking professor, Skip. Skip Barnhart. Did, oh, yeah. He didn't even have a high school diploma, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I wouldn't. That's probably true. <laughs> so Great yeah, guy. Was, amazing yeah. printmaker. Like, no oh, question yeah. about his skills. But, but like, I remember hearing that, and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's, and, you know, and it was unheard of even at that time. And this is, you know, this is still, a, a, academia was still not like it is now. But the Corcoran was a little different. It's a private institution, so they private. could get away with a lot of things that right. a, a government-funded, sort of a, a publicly-funded university could not get away with. Right. St. St. Mary's is liberal arts. It was part of the St. Mary, the Maryland uh, system. And so, you know, there was a lot of hoops to jump through. And so when I got through tenure, which was a pretty big deal, it was wonderful, had, you know, blah, blah, blah. I just loved it. I mean, I just felt like, this is great. I do enjoy this. I'm able to make my work. They gave us studios. You know, it was just a great setup. But then I realized once I got tenure, then it was like less teaching, more committees, more more non-classroom oriented work. And I was like, that's not what I signed up for. I don't want to go sit in a dumb committee where you sit in this committee and then that committee breaks into another committee. And then that committee reports back to the original committee that then breaks into another committee. And then two years later, nothing's changed. <laughs> I, I hate committees. I hate committees with such a passion. Like yeah. I, they, I would always, they'd always ask for volunteers for committees and I would never volunteer until it finally got down to the Dean actually saying like, you must legally be on a committee right. and they would just stick me on some shitty committee that I just, yeah. they, they never do anything. Like, I mean, it's horrible. It's yeah. it's just it's just a bunch of people placating things and checking boxes to make it look like work's being done, even though work's not actually being done, and it's just wasting all of our times. But like, I wish they could break like teaching into like here are teachers who love to teach, and here are teachers who love to do administrative work, and let the administrative work people do their thing, and let the teachers do their thing. Like that would be amazing. No, I tend to agree, and that's and that's where I got I got to this point ten years in getting tenure after my, I had to go through the full, I didn't get, obviously I didn't get any real world credit towards tenure. So I had to go through the whole six year situation of getting tenure. So my seventh year was my first year. Oh, it was my sabbatical. That's a great year. <laughs> and then my eighth and ninth year was coming back into like realizing, wait a minute, this is not the same as, as it was pre-tenure. And then my 10th year was like, I was in the hell of administrative assessment and goals crap that you do all the time. And I started thinking, this is not what I want to do with the rest of my life. This is not what I want. Um, my mom still lives here and uh, it lives in the same place I grew up in in Mills River, which is near Asheville. Asheville, of course, between the time I left in 87 and 2010, had changed from being like boarded up kind of downtown dying situation into being like the beer and food capital of the East coast. <laughs> oh yeah. It's an amazing place now. And so I was like, you know, why not, why not? And, and the scene, the art scene, which 
given it a little too much. I wouldn't say an art scene. The, the art community, the art community here is amazing. And there's a lot of what one would call expatriates here from just all over. Other, other big art world situations that came here to just be like, slow down, quality of life. There's smart people here and there's space. And I can make stuff here and then ship it to wherever because that's when, you know, the internet and uh, Instagram and all that stuff was blowing up. So you don't have to be in New York. You can be, you know, you can be in Asheville and ship your stuff to wherever you want to ship. Isn't that where Black Mountain College was also? Correct. And Black Mountain College is uh, the history and the legacy of Black Mountain College was embedded here and, and is pretty much, the, you know, still embedded in the ethos of the even the, the social and, and political kind of life here. And so, you know, it has, it just has a really good vibe. Now it's an oasis, of course, uh, in the middle of, of what one would call a fairly conservative situation, but it's an oasis nonetheless it voted for Bernie Sanders in 2016. So, you know, Hey, <laughs> it's not so bad. So I moved back here, uh, thinking, you know, I'll move back here and just start fresh. I'll, I have, I have, my, I have family here. I had a couple of friends I knew that were still here or around here and I'll come back here and, um, and see what's next. And I had met someone who had two kids and I thought, well, you know, change of life, change of scenery. Maybe I'll rethink my priorities and kind of like we did a real big life reassessment. And seven years later, you know, here I am. <laughs> well, and, and but you, you act like, and that was done and I'm just <laughs> done with it. But like you are probably busier now than you ever were because you're not only, you're, I've noticed you're sort of being more productive with your artwork. I've seen at least more on social media, you're sort of yes. keeping it updated and showing more of what you're currently working on. And you also run and coordinate uh, Revolve, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I didn't retire <laughs> when I moved Just in. to be clear. Just to be very clear. I, I did not retire here. I, I came back here to kind of, like I said, to kind of rethink my priorities and also to kind of rethink what my practice at that point was. I had shown in D, I'd shown at Hemphill since 1992, 93. I had a show at Hemphill in 2012. And then I had one in 2015, 16. That's my last show there. Both those shows were pretty much work that was still kind of finishing up while I was still in Maryland. That was the highly, the digitized stuff, right? The, the color work and the, the, the work that I started working as a the scanner-based work that I'd been doing. And once I moved here, some things that I wasn't planning on that I didn't think through really came to fruition, which was the one thing about the teaching gig, well, there are many things, but one thing about the teaching gig that I did not take in consideration was the fact that I had a perfect setup facility, 24-7 access for me to go use anytime I wanted that I had set up so I knew exactly how it worked. And I lost that, like that, gone, just like that. And as a photographer, you know, printing facility is key or having someone to work with to print. I'd worked with David Adamson in DC for years and also Chris, Chris Foley out in uh, Old Town Editions for years. But then when I moved to St. Mary's, I was able to set up my own situation and I just did not taking consideration how much I relied on the ability to go in at 1230 at night with a file that I had just figured out that I wanted to see what it looked like by, you know, in the morning and be able to do that anytime I wanted to. When I came move back here, it was like I had to start like right all over again. And so I really did not, and, and beyond that and beyond life things that, that happened, I didn't, as I kind of uh, talked about recently in some of my posts, I, had, I, hadn't made, I didn't make work for seven years, really, anything new. I I produced work that was from previous bodies of work for commissions and such via Hemphill and other places. 
but I hadn't generated any new work for seven years. And partly that was in, in retrospect, you know, I think that was part of the, just the ebb and flow of, of uh, one studio life. I, I needed to, I needed to kind of reassess and think things and slow down. And my studio life became less about my studio in per, per se, and more about thinking about the community and, and, and thinking about this new entity that I started up called Revolve, this kind of art hub as a way of studio practice, as a way of listening, gathering, and, and, and watching what other people were doing to kind of glean new ways of working, new ways of thinking. And so beyond doing what it was primarily for, which was to connect and, and try to give the community a, a safe kind of inclusive space to show work that was not commercial oriented, it also proved to be a very, very kind of incubator space for my own practice that I just let kind of seep into my consciousness about like, look what that person's doing. Look how that person's doing that. That's interesting. That's not so interesting or blah, 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 blah. And it just became this great, it was a different way of me thinking about studio practice. Instead of me feeling like I have to go to the studio and do something every day, sometimes I would go to the studio, quote unquote, and just listen, look, and absorb what other people were doing. And it was kind of like a research lab for me. Okay, wait, you just brought something up. So like, art, I generally find that there are like two kinds of artists in the world. There are the artists that go in the studio every day and they are physically in that space and sort of they're doing anything just to be around sort of that creativity. And then there are the others that wait until they're inspired before they enter into the studio. So like, which camp do you fall in? I think I fall in both. I think, I mean, I do believe in the whole ethos of work makes work, meaning that if you can't, if you don't have any idea, just do something and an idea will come out of that. I do believe in that. So I, but I think the kind of, I guess what I'm trying to get at is the traditional way of thinking of going to the studio every day and what that means and looks like for me has really changed over the last 10 years. I've, I've, and the idea of what constitutes a studio, you know, when we were in school at the Corcoran, the idea of a studio meant a room that you went into, you shut the door and you were like creating, you know, in this room. This yes, space. With, with a black paper backdrop and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and some studio lights. Yeah, you had you had you had your like thing, but for me, it's, the idea of a studio now has changed from not uh, not being a set place. Like my studio could be uh, at my desk here. My studio can be out in the forest. My studio could be at Revolve. My studio could be doing a studio visit with someone. My studio could be actually right now being having a, a discussion around practice. My studio could be at Burial Beer. You know, it's like the idea being that. The studio is really about, the studio should move with you. At least that's how I've come to it. Like the pra practicing as an artist, or as a creative person, you should be open to what's your surroundings and your environment wherever you are. And for me to limit the access of my creativity to one place or a particular location became very, well, number one, it became impossible because of, of not having that for so long. But then number two, realizing that, that it became limiting and that in the 21st century, in the, way, in the way that we are kind of navigating this time, especially right now, but in the 21st century, because of the, the access of information and the fact that you can carry that information around on your phone or access it via your phone, you can be anywhere and that can happen. You don't have to be in front of your computer. You don't have to be in front of a TV. You don't have to be 
in your studio. In a dark room. In a, in a dark room. Your dark room can go with you. And that's, I think that that's, that's been the single most, you know, shift in my, my, my way of thinking and my way of practice from the mid nineties to the 2020s. I've been having the same kind of conversation with my, I mean, I've been an expat now for over eight years in the Middle East and in Europe. And, and I keep thinking like more and more that with UPS and DHL and all these kind of things, and of course the internet and everything else, like there is no reason to live anywhere if you want to be creative. Like you can live anywhere you want and communicate with people through things like Zoom and those kinds of things, email. And then of course you can just ship things anywhere in the world. So like you, you, to a certain extent, like this time in our history is the like a, 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 a big change, a big shift where we, there is no need to be in the major metropolitan areas or the major cultural hubs to be cultural. You know, you can live anywhere, like nothing personal to Asheville, but like it's not really a big cultural hub, but it's yeah. a great, it's a great place. I love Asheville, but my, my family actually, I told you they moved, they moved to Wilmington. Right. So, so I've actually been up to Asheville every now and then because oh, I, okay, I great. love Asheville. So, uh, yeah, it's absolutely magnificent up there, but it's not your big cultural Mecca. Right. And, you know, and you know, for me, I don't know about, uh, I'm not certain what your relationship is with Sally Mann or, you know, if you were ever, that was ever someone who you. I wish I had a relationship with Sally Mann. That would be <laughs> fabulous. I would love to know her. Yeah. I, I fortunately had, I was, I had a, both a professional relationship with her and then I got to know her on a personal level because my girlfriend at the time was her uh, assistant during the immediate family time in the early nineties, mid nineties. But my point being is that, you know, going to see her or visit her in Lexington, Virginia and where she has continued, she stayed at anchored her entire life, her entire family life and professional life. Seeing that as a model saying that, you know what, I don't need to go to the art world and I'm not asking the art world quote unquote to come to me. I'm just saying that this is where I need to work. This is where this is my this is where I work from. And that had an impact because of course when we were in college, you know, when we were coming to the Corcoran and the art world at that time, it was all about New York, LA, London, Berlin was starting to blow up, you know. Paris. And yeah. Paris, all that. it was all about you had to be in these places which was kind of leftover vestiges from the 20th century, uh, 19th century, 20th century thing. But, you know, not that Sally Mann was a first, but she was someone who was in our discipline and someone who was kind of blowing up in the 90s when we were students and understanding what it was like to be an artist in the real world. And her model, her her her, her way of practicing her work on her terms really uh, impressed and had a big impact on me and thinking that I don't need to move to New York uh, to make good work. Like, I'll make good work wherever I'm at. And if the people respond to it in New York or wherever, cool. But if they don't, I'll still be, I'll have a quality of life that I need. Yeah, but that's the thing is like, you, you could never have made the work you made if you lived in New York. Like no. you, you simply by scale, scale by, yeah. by, well, yeah, I mean, your stuff would never fit in an average New York apartment because <laughs> so, right. it's quite large scale, but the, but I mean, between the scale and the, and the, the cost of living. And of course, then even the, just the mindset, like, cause like when, whenever, even when I visit New York, I'm like go, 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 go. You know, you don't have that relaxing, enjoying time as much as you would do if you live somewhere like, let's say, Asheville or St. Mary's. You know, there's a little bit more reflective uh, time to be able to sort of be with your thoughts and come up with your creative techniques and ideas. Most certainly. 
I think it's obviously much more prevalent now, and that's a lot to do with social media and the prevalence of being able to disperse your work and, and various means and ways, which was quite different than it was in the 90s. But that model of being able to, to say, this is where I want to work and this is where I need to work, and I'm not going to be forced to go somewhere just because it's where you have to be, is an important thing to think about. Okay, let's move on to Revolve. So let's get okay. up to date. So we've talked sure. about your history for quite a long time now. So let's talk about what you are doing now. Sure. So on the one hand, you have Revolve. And on the other hand, you're doing, I've been noticing the scans out in the woods that you're doing a lot right. of. I right. even saw those on the Hemphill website as well. Um, the, so like, so how do you, to be blunt and crass about it, like how do you make a living doing all these things? Sure. Well, uh, of course. Let, uh, Sorry to be so blunt. No, no, no. no. You qual- we should qualify making a living, right? It's true. It's true, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Well, Asheville is 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 certainly has gotten more expensive, but it certainly is still quite l- less expensive than living in the D.C. area. So I knew that when I made the move from the D.C. area to here and lost, you know, lost my nice salary from being tenured, that I had to kind of. I would have to rethink and, and, and have to reassess and, and think about what what it is I was going to need overhead, you know, to keep my overhead low and what I was going to need to be able to to figure things out here. And I spent the first two years here keeping things. I had savings and was living, like I said, I was living with someone with two children. And I, you know, I just decided to not do anything. I mean, besides some small odds and ends things. But to like look at what was going on here, to understand the community that was here, see see what would what could I add instead of coming here and thinking I know what's best because I'm coming from the big metropolitan area. I came here and was like I'm from here, but I haven't been here in a long time, so I understand that things are a little slower. So I'm just going to come here and spend. I'm just going to listen and watch what's going on, and then maybe think about what's the best way for me to to be a part of this community. So I waited about two years. Then about two years in, I said, okay, it's time for me to get a studio that I can at least start practicing my work again. And, and I'm going to get a studio down where it's supposed to be the arts district. And I'm going to get a sense of what it's like to be a part of that. And I, I, I got the studio down there and keep it short and simple. I realized pretty quickly that I didn't want to have my art studio in a public, you know, like in this kind of public place where people would walk through your spaces and all this stuff because it was kind of like you're an animal in a zoo type situation where, you know, people would just file through to watch you make art or whatever. Yeah, like no torpedo factory. Yeah, exactly. It was like torpedo factory uh, up in the DC area. I didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want that to be the case. So I realized quickly that I wanted to shift from not only making work in the space, but to actually bring. If the community was going to come in here uncontrolled, <laughs> I wanted to find ways to control the community that came in here in the sense that I wanted to start inviting the community in through events to just kind of see what kind of conceptual, intellectual, aesthetic vibe was going on here and just have people come in and do art talks about their work or about their practice. And I was going to try it once a month to see how it would go. And quite literally after the first, second, third, it was became standing room only. People just came in. It was like it became something that was that I found what was lacking was an actual gathering place for artists, not necessarily collectors and and buyers, but a place actually where artists could come together and start talking about their creative life and how they, how they worked in the city. And it kind of grew and grew and grew and it outgrew my studio space. And I had to then decide what was next. 
so back to your original question, how did I make a living during all this? I did. I bear. I mean, I was just scraping by. Uh, make. I made a living through my savings, through the goodwill of friends and supporters. I did sell some work in in, in DC through Hempill, that would help basically help finance the next three months or six months because thing my overhead was really low here. Then what happened was the cotton mill building, which uh, Revolve, my studio. So keep in mind, Revolve started as just a corner of my studio. The owners decided to sell the building, which was like all of a sudden that, that kind of meant trouble because at that point, even I'd been here for it, that would have been, uh, I'd have been here for three years. And even between the time I got here and those three years, rent had gone up a third, if not doubled in that area because things were just starting to blow up with all the breweries were moving in and all of this stuff. So I was like, there is no way that I'm going to be able to get another studio space and, and survive. So this is pretty much the end of this little experiment. The owners, unbeknownst to me, were loved what I was doing. And they decided to take some of the proceeds from their sell the building and help me set up the second, you know, Revolve Mark II and this new gallery, this new space that was being developed for artist studios called the Ramp Studios, which was just at the other end of the River Arch District, which was actually much better for what I was doing because it was about intentional, an intentional space, a place where you went with intention. You didn't just find it. You had to go there for a reason. And they helped me, uh, they meaning Derek Domney and Denise Carbonell, who were New York artists who had come down to Asheville five years previous. They uh, basically endowed the space for three years, for a three-year lease. And it allowed me to be able to take a very small salary, to pay rent without sweating it, and to program the space from 2017 to, to now, 2020. Okay, wait, just to be clear, is this a for-profit, non-profit? How did you sort of structure the company? When I opened it in 2015, it was just an LLC. And it was running out of my studio. But when I had the opportunity to move to ramp there were uh, i had hosted like i said i had brought the community into my original my space in 2015 and, and one of the community folks that came in and did several different presentations was a nonprofit called the media arts project here in Asheville, which was actually the longest running arts nonprofit in Asheville. and they were in transition around the time that i was given this opportunity to move i approached them about partnering and bringing our two entities together because we had very similar audiences. And I thought the pie is too small here in Asheville for us to compete. Why don't we work together and, and try to be stronger? And I'll get nonprofit status and they'll have programming. I'll build, have built-in programming that would go from there. And so we entered in a three-year partnership from 2017 that coincided with the lease, 2017 to 2020, uh, as a nonprofit. I have since reverted back to an LLC because our partnership ended. But also keep in mind that, and not to jump too far ahead, but keep in mind that the pandemic hit and that meant everything was shut down. So it kind of, everything kind of collapsed all at once. And now we're kind of rebuilding out of the embers into, uh, you know, almost a different entity at the moment uh, where most of what we do in Revolve is online. I've noticed that you you were doing some online like teaching, homeschooling, and things like this to help kids uh, with art education from home, stuff like this. Yes. So what happened was a pandemic hit in in March. Our, we had a very active physical space where we hosted 
I mean, I actually pulled up some numbers here just so you would understand. We we hosted so from 2015 to 2017, when we were in the original space, we hosted 48 events in in the cotton mill space. But when, once we moved to a, a much more conducive space, 2017 to March 2020, we had 218. We ran 218 events. That's a lot of events. Yeah. So we were very active in that space. But once March 2020 came, the pandemic hit, we were we had to shut the doors to the, the physical space. Then a month, and you may actually remember Bernard Welch. He was a professor in humanities at the Corcoran. Maybe. Maybe. Ber- yeah. Bernard sounds familiar, but I- Do you remember Doug Lang and who else would have been there? Marth- Martha uh, was an art historian there. Anyway, these were the humanities folks. Long story short is Bernard Welt and I are still close friends from our Corcoran days. And he contacted me and said, what are you thinking about doing? And I was like, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking that we're going to have to close a physical space short term anytime anyway, but I'm wondering if it's possible to do some things online. And he was like, how about we part, you know, how about I help you with this online initiative? And so we developed this thing called homeschool, which was the idea that you would be able to, to do, basically have some cultural sustenance via Zoom in the comfort of your own home where you were felt safe. And so we started running a lot of programming. We couldn't do our live music programming or some uh, our film series, things of that nature. But we, what we could do was bring, basically re, re, bring people back on for, you know, art talks, art history talks, kind of a conversational type things. And we, so we, op- we had our very first one in uh, April 19th, I believe, which is about a year, a month after we had closed. We opened up our first homeschool on the 19th. And since the 19th of April, and as of this week, we've had 19 homeschool events. Plus, we started a, a first draft residency series in the physical space since the pandemic went into phase two, which has meant that we could have one person occupy the space, and then people could sign up to visit it and half an hour slots with social distancing things. So we quickly kind of rethought our model from being you know, your classic art space hub where we had like we had three different spaces we could program we had live music performance art talks exhibitions you name it we had communities come in and have their meetings there we had to quickly completely shift that from in march 2020 into socially distancing safe kind of events that we could host online and then we slowly have moved back into occupying the physical space but only via offering artist residencies for artists who have not been able to get back into their building to work because of. Oh, interesting. Okay. So because like I don't uh, have a studio in a group building kind of thing. Like I have a studio in a standalone building that I. A lot of Asheville is like studio art studios in old abandoned pl- uh, physical factories. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we, we opened up the space in May was our first one and we had we've had May, June and July and we're getting ready to start our fourth art residency in the space where one artist occupies the space, works for 3 weeks and then the last week of the of the residency they open up the space for half an hour slots 3 days a week where people can come in and see a show that they put up during that time. And it's been actually really great. It's just that the only way this has been able to happen is because we have really really cool landlords who want to keep us there and are not charging us rent until the fall. And that's what we're in the midst of negotiating right now. So how good can, luck with that. Yeah, good luck with that. But fortunately, we're lucky because our, our landlords are being have been really, really supportive and want want us to be there because we've done a lot for the that that community there has been able to be like a an anchor for the building. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I ran a public arts, uh, like a sculpture program in, in Wilmington. And uh, it's interesting, like some developers and, and you know, business owners and stuff are very good with understanding how arts and culture can sort of draw attention to their businesses or attention to their properties or whatever. And some are not <laughs> like they just don't oh, sure. get it. I find it fascinating because to me, like, with the history of, like, if you just look through the history of any civilization or in any major metropolitan area or anything like this, you know, arts and culture will always draw people to a, a neighborhood, a district, a property, or whatever it is. So, like, if you can get something creative and interesting and unique into a certain property, then it often will draw other people wanting to rent out other, you know, parts of the building or buildings near there for their businesses or to live there or whatever. So I mean, it seems like good, smart business for developers and landlords to include some sort of creative thing in, in any project that they put together. Well, certainly. I mean, you know, Asheville was primarily known as like supposedly an arts town. I wouldn't even go as far as saying city, but an arts town. And that's how it gained some reputation. And that's how the New York Times started dealing with it. But then all of a sudden it shifted from you know, there was lots of people coming here to see art and, and the city was able to flourish for it. And then all of a sudden, you know, restaurants started opening because there were people here looking for art. And so they needed a place to eat. And then the breweries moved here because primarily because we have really good fresh water in the mountains. So we had New Belgium move here, uh, Sierra Nevada moved here. And then we have, I think there's over a hundred microbreweries in this area that moved here. And so all of a sudden the shift went from cultural center to food and beverage center. Mm. And, and that's when things started getting sideways with the rent and the, you know, the availability of spaces for artists. All of a sudden we were getting pushed out by the people that we brought here. It's always what happens, but you would, you, you want there to be like some lessons learned. And I'm hoping that there's still time for the, for, for Asheville to pull it together and realize that. But nonetheless, we are fortunately in a, in a, in a good situation currently with our landlord and our new, newly uh, kind of con uh, put together advisory board are actually meeting this week and next week to kind of make a plan forward whether it's the actuality of keeping a physical space makes sense in the next year because of what's going on, or whether we should just move entirely online and then do satellite events in other people's spaces, or find some sort of hybrid model that brings the two things together and that we can find a way to make the physical, physical space viable and, and fiscally viable to operate in conjunction with the other things that we're doing. Okay. I, I want to ask you a question because I mean, obviously I run a podcast sure. and you're doing online sort of education, cultural sure. stuff. Like, so how is it, how is your stuff working for you? Like, are you getting a lot of involvement, a lot of activity feedback? Like how, you know, cause like to a certain extent I'll, I'll be full, you know, admit it. Like, I mean, I'm not getting as many listeners as I would like, and I'm not sure, and I'm not getting as much engagement. Like people aren't actually like you know messaging me and this kind of stuff, and my social media is not going crazy and all that. So like, so I'm wondering, you know, is it working for you? Uh, and, and are you getting what you want sort of out of it? Well, that's a really good question. I think to be fair about it, I didn't know what I wanted out of it when I went into it. To be honest with you. I'm a very much a, a physical space person. I'm not a virtual space person. I, I find that, uh, as we had discussed just a few minutes ago, the idea of like uh, putting two things in a physical space and seeing what a third thing happens, that's where all the excitement is for me. I think that that kind, you can't replicate 
what happens when you get a group of people together experiencing the same thing in a physical space just can't be replicated. So the point is, don't replicate that, right? Don't don't try to do that kind of thing uh, in a different kind in a virtual space. So for me, I, I we we shifted pretty quickly, and I was a little reticent about it because I am not, you know, I would rather text than talk on the phone. You know, I'm I'm not, I'm not same same as most people. I'm not I'm not dying to be in front of a screen to do my communicating. I would rather just find other ways. And when we when we switched over, I don't know what what we thought was going to happen or how it would work. I I expected us to get 10 people. You know, we would be happy if 10 people well, showed up. For the first one, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And to be fair, you know, our our physical events, we did we did a lot of we hosted a lot of avant type stuff and 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 that was our mission and we were committed to it and I was happy sometimes if five people showed up to see this electronic musician from from Spain who was on tour because the five people that showed up were like rabid fans. Like they were crazy about it. And for me, if five people showed up and they wanted to be there, it was worth it. Sometimes we would have events where a hundred people would show up and that was great too. But I was committed and I was comfortable with five to a hundred. I thought that, that that was part of our mission. We weren't about always getting numbers. So when we went into this, the virtual and into this idea of doing these zoom online initiatives, I didn't know what to expect, and you know we've we, it's been very similar, except there's been one very different positive thing, and that is that the community is not geographically confined. That we actually have been able to connect with people in Europe and a lot, you know, in Britain and Hawaii, obviously in California, Canada. We've had people visit or be a part of our programming from all over, and so for so one of the things that's the most exciting for me that I find the most kind of where things start to happen that doesn't happen when you're in a physical space is we had one event where the artist was in the Lower East Side, New York in May. So it was right right during the the intensity of, of what they had not left their apartment in three months. This was Scooter LaForge. He had decided he couldn't go to the studio. So he painted his entire apartment from floor to ceiling to furniture, the whole thing he painted. And he, he called it the Corona Cave. So it was like a Corona cave painting. So we had him in Lower East Side, uh, New York. We had uh, a curator from LA. We had a moderator in DC. And then we had uh, the facilitator for the whole thing here in Asheville. And we all connected and we talked. And it was one of the most exciting. We had like we had 83 people at this particular Zoom thing. And it was one of the most kind of dynamic, interesting, wonderful ways of connecting not only through the conversation, but because what was going on in LA during the pandemic, what was going on in New York in the pandemic, what was happening in DC and what was happening in Nashville, the community kind of like felt connected and also felt some sort of like comfort that we were all kind of in this together, but we were in like several different time zones and we all met at this one thing. And that was, that's when I started realizing, okay, the online thing, whether we, whether we continue it or, or whether we continue it as it is or, in the future, it still has a place in what we decide to do because this kind of connections of being able to bring creative folks together that don't live in the same town, to be able to bring them together to have conversations is viable and people show up to want to hear it. They want to hear it. I have I have an idea that I'm, I'm still thinking about in my own mind and I'll, I'll give it to you. You can have it if you want because it <laughs> would, I'll have you, would... You on, I'll have you on homeschool and you can, uh, you can 
you can ask <laughs> sure whatever yeah that's fine i'm happy to do that but the <clears throat> the I have this idea that that um, what might be interesting now because of the pandemic is actually to do something like, um, you know, the portfolio reviews, of course, as photographers, we sure. all do those and participate on both sides of them, either as the reviewer or the reviewee. What about like doing portfolio reviews with curators from LA or New York or whatever and and like recording the video of the person like looking through the portfolio and all that and then put it on YouTube for other people to be able to see how somebody was reviewed kind of thing right. like so that they could learn sort of learn from other people's successes learn from other people's mistakes whatever kind of thing so that you know like one-on-one -on -one portfolio reviews with a professional with a, an artist and then put that entire process of the review available for viewing by the public that sounds that would be that's that's the great idea and I, actually I, I do think i mean there's actually a group here in Asheville. they're called six feet photography you should check them out they're uh they're friends and, and folks that we've supported they actually just did something similar to that where they had a portfolio review online for photographers with a curator you had to sign up for it. And then I don't know how it actually, I don't think it's happened yet or it's happening this week, but I I'm, I'm with you. This is part of what we were getting at, which is the fact that you can bring people together that normally would not be able to get together. And that's, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And if you can use the vehicle of, of the online aspect of it, the virtual aspect of it in a way that's not trying to replicate the in-person way, then maybe something will come out of it that will be kind of revelatory or, or, it will transcend the, the screen in a way that you might not be able to get otherwise. That's sort of my thing about these like portfolio reviews. Cause like I've been on both sides, I've been a reviewer and a reviewee over the years. And like, it's all great. But like when you're in the middle of it, you're, you're not really listening so much cause you're so nervous and you're right. so anxious and all this. Cause you may not hear everything, but not only that, but like, then you end up talking to other people and they're like, oh yeah, so-and-so said this other positive thing where they said negative things about you or vice versa. And, and it would be very, I find it, I think it would be very interesting to see how other professionals in the field are looking at work. You know, so, so, it's like, so it's like, how are curators or collectors or gallery owners looking at contemporary work and what are their criticisms and their feedbacks and their things like this? Like just hearing what the current state of thought is, I think would be quite fascinating. No, I agree. Uh, I agree with you. And I think that the, the, that vehicle could actually, like you said, be a, a new way of, of being able to actually grasp what's being discussed in a more satisfying way it's not it's not going past you so fast that you you kind of like you said you could zone out for like five seconds and maybe miss the most important thing someone said but this way you have the opportunity to listen to it more than once you can listen to it on your own time you can pause it go to the bathroom come back whatever and it's super i think it's a it's a great great idea you know one thing that we did that i think has been another successful use of the virtual space in homeschool is like in many places here in Asheville, Tracy Morgan Gallery, which is one of the contemporary spaces here, they opened a show right when the pandemic hit, so no one could go see it. And so they kept the show up for a long time. And when things started to loosen up a little bit, when we went into phase two, I approached them about having uh, an artist talk with the artist for the show via homeschool, but not just in a general like the artist in their studio. I have the artist talk in the, in the gallery so there could be like a virtual tour of the show. The artist could talk about the work within the work and then could also bring in 
a PowerPoint or, or outside, you know, bring in slides of influences and working processes and like things in progress. You can see here's what this work looked like three months ago. And now here's here it is in the space and you can see it there. And we, we decided to give this a try. And it was for me, it was wildly successful on many fronts, partly because we had a good turnout. The artist's work got to be seen in a way that it would have never been seen, even in person. Point being is I had someone there with an iPhone who was filming the gallery space and they could take the iPhone up and 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 look at the sculptures or the, the, the drawings or the paintings in such a way that were so close up, so detailed from different angles and different ways that, that made you think about when I go look in the gallery in person, I need to look at the work differently than just walking around like a zombie looking at the work. I need to be more active looking because here is a way of actively looking at the work via the virtual world, via different devices and translate that into your actual viewing experience. And you become, it's a richer experience overall. And I felt like that, you know, I feel like that's where the things can start feeding and helping one another, where you can have both without them competing or detracting from one another. They can actually become, you know, a, 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 a more full, fully realized way of, of experiencing the artwork if you can get the two things to happen. Our life is basically, turn, we have to do that. Like, we have there, there's no, it's like saying like, I'm going to be an artist and I'm only going to exhibit in galleries and I'm not going to allow any pictures on social media. Right. Like, I mean, it, it just can't happen. Like no. you have to do it. Yeah, or you know, the point is, is if you don't want pictures on social media, then I understand it if you don't want to replicate the pic, your work on social media, because let's say you're the 3D person and social media is a 2D, then find ways to show your work on social media that is unlike seeing it in a 2D screen, like show it and find different methods to, to deal with it. But could you imagine there, if there is an exhibition that happens somewhere in the world where they basically say, no photos are allowed to be taken of it and no social media posts at all of the work that's in the gallery. Do you know how many people are going to be clamoring to know what's in there? Like sure. everybody loves the, what the, what they can't get. No, no, most certainly. I, and there, there is that. I mean, I know we, we both probably know this, you know, you, like you have work and then like you, you're, what, what should, I don't want to put anything on social media because then it ruins a surprise. Like, you know, I, you know, I don't want, I don't want, I want the, I want people to walk in and be surprised by it. And that becomes kind of short-sighted, at least for me, it became short-sighted when I realized that, what social media should be is not a replication of what they're going to see when they walk in a gallery, but a new way of seeing it, a new way of experiencing it, where when they walk in the gallery, they're actually surprised by what they walk in to see. It's a different experience. Oh, no, you did that. No, no, you did that for a long time because yeah. I remember watching you on like, I think it was Facebook at the time, and I would always see you building your frames. Right. And so your work was always down. And That's you, exactly so I, right. We couldn't see what the image was, but we could see the frame you were building or the structure you were building to hold the large scale picture, but we could never see the work, but the, right. we knew there was something coming. You were just teasing us. <laughs> well, be honest with you. I was teasing myself because my studios were always so small that I can never even see my, I never, the only time I ever saw my work on the wall was when I installed it in a show. <laughs> you do work large. Like I, you know. I have been working large for quite some time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So wait, great transition. So with your current work and all this, like, so uh, let me, I want to do a little technical thing on this sure. because, you know, I geek a little bit here and there. So you're now going out onto the forest floor with a scanner mm -hmm. on location. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you're doing mostly scanning up. I've saw a couple that were, you were looking down at the f floor itself. 
so how are you doing this? So what is it like a battery pack with a scanner? Like, and you're going out on location and doing this, like, give me a little technical nuts and bolts here. Again, it was kind of, again, uh, out of, out of process. And my work usually is, is generates itself from process. And then after, out of that comes content. That's been always my way of mode of working for a long time. I worked with a scanner in the studio. I would bring, I would bring things from the natural world, from my environment. Yeah. The birds, the birds and shotgun shells and all sorts of things I would find on my walks. I would bring them into the studio and scan them almost like a lab, right? Like I was a scientist, I was scanning a specimen and, and it was like that kind of setup, right? It was very much like that. And I did that for years and it made sense because it was the obvious, it was the obvious thing you did. <laughs> you, how else would you do it? But then it became more and more clear to me that I was getting not frustrated, but I was starting to understand that I didn't want to separate the two spaces. I didn't want, I didn't want there to be this one space to another space transition. I wanted actually the two spaces to kind of collapse into one. So I wanted to be able to work in the area. You know, I wanted to do what I used to do, right? I wanted to walk around with my camera and photograph, except my camera at this point was a large flatbed scanner, which, you know, is a very different uh, uh, mode of working than uh, if you walk around with an SLR camera. So it's like working with an eight by 10. It's like working with eight by 10. And I appreciate you bringing that up because that's clearly was my, my mode of thinking. You know, I was thinking, okay, the eight by 10 folks could figure this out. You know, they had, they had to figure out ways to, you know, again, to refer back to Sally Mann and seeing her modes of working, there's documentaries of her where she has converted a, a van, a truck, the back of a truck into uh, a wet dark room. So she can coat her glass plates on site and her hands are all black. Hands are yeah. all black, right? And so my point was is that okay, she was dealing with she was dealing with 19th century processes and finding ways to bring that into the 21st century with technology that existed now. I on the other hand wanted to kind of go the other way out and take technology from the 21st century and kind of go out like I was a 19th century photographer again and and investigate the environment, investigate the landscape that way. But I had the same set of problems which was how can you translate the the technical and tools that way. And so, you know, it's one of those things where you, you just start thinking, this is back to the liberal arts background. I started realizing that I needed to quit thinking like an artist and start thinking like a construction site. Okay. If they can have boom boxes and, and, and table saws and all this stuff on a construction site that has no electricity, they got to be able to power it somehow. So how do they do that? So I'm like, I don't know, maybe I should go to Home Depot or Lowe's and see what's going on. So I went down there and uh, and I started talking to someone. I was like, look, I'm looking to, I, you know, I didn't tell them what I was doing because they would look at me like I'm insane. But I said, I'm looking to power basically, a, you know, a 120 volt appliance on site. Uh, is there a way to do that that's light and simple that I can carry around? And they were like, where have you been living? Yes, of course. <laughs> All you got to do is right now they developed the same battery that, that uh, lithium battery that runs your drill. They've created a, a, gen, a little mini generator that you just plug that into and it operates like an outlet anywhere you want to go. Oh, yeah. They've had that for uh, strobe lights for many years as sure. well. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, bat- and it, battery packs. Yeah. You know, you just don't, uh, but, uh, you know, and I, when you get caught up in your mode of working, when you're caught up in like thinking, okay, I got to plug this into an outlet and that's how it works. When you start thinking like, how do I get this outdoors? I don't. I can't get an. Ext- I'm not going to run an extension cord, you know, a <laughs> hundred yards, you know, to do it. Which you could, but I like that's not what I want to do because I want to go places where it's going to be a lot further than a hundred yards. So I was like, oh, okay, well, this solves the problem. Now I'm mobile. Now I can go where I want. Let's just see how it works. And so I did some tests, and I was like, oh, this is this is 
this is going to work. This is going to be great. So I basically got a scanner, little mini generator, two lithium drill batteries, a laptop, and a backpack that could hold all of that stuff. Basically, just like the old 8 by Ansel Adams and Carlton Watkins and the whole crew back in the 19th century would backpack their stuff. And then I went out and gave it a try and realized right off the bat that, of course, uh, you you probably do the same thing I do. I, I, I won't speak for you, but I started working in the same mode that I was working in previously, which is the scanner was, was I set the scanner down and then I just found things to put on the scanner, but in the environment, but I was in the environment. But then I was like, why am I, I mean, I could be doing this at home. Why am I doing that? I need to actually use a scanner in the environment. So I started realizing I could take the scanner anywhere. And then all of a sudden, it kind of dawned on me that the most exciting thing that was going to happen that could happen would be what I'd been missing, which was the physicality of photographing. Meaning, I never was a street photographer. I never was one of those folks that walked around looking for photographs. But I always liked being in the world with the camera, even if it was even if it was a, a, a setup or a, 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 you know it was completely staged. I still liked the physicality of vantage, you know, something as simple as like changing your vantage point or, you know, all of that kind of thing. So I realized I could take the scanner and I could actually move the scanner during the exposure because, and I use that term exposure with quotes, the scanner in the mode that I would work in would take about eight to 10 minutes to complete a scan. That's high res. Uh, high res, which of course translates to big files. And you know, my files are about three gigs per <laughs> <laughs> so, so I realized that, you know, just like in the old wet dark room where I used to work and I would realize that I had 30 seconds, depending on what my stop was on the enlarger, I had 30 seconds that I could do something with while it was exposing. And that's when I started doing all this manipulating and how my older work used to look all dreamy and gothy and 4AD-ish. I realized that I could still activate, I could activate time and do something with it just like I did in the wet dark room. But this time, instead of you know staying stable and moving my hands or doing whatever, I could actually take the scanner and move it and scan multiple things during the exposure, almost like double exposing or multiple exposing a roll of film. And that's when things really started to click. And I started realizing that what was interesting to me was the performative aspect of photography. Once again, I hadn't been doing that for so long. And I so enjoyed being physical with my tools and being kind of improvisational with the way that I was photographing. And and this really does come out of my kind of love of music and my love of jazz and and again of operating in an art space where I brought avant musicians in who would walk in. Sometimes they would meet each other. They would be coming from different cities. They had not met each other and they would sit down and make music together without ever having to do it and just seeing what happens. And I realized that this was an opportunity for me to kind of be almost be like collecting field recordings in nature, but not with a sound device, but with a visual device with a camera. And so I started creating multiple exposures, not, you know, during the one long exposures. So while some of the work you may have seen, the one that's on that Hemphill put out recently looks almost like a collage, like stacked collages, like I maybe had, done that in Photoshop. It, it's all done, uh, in, quote unquote, in camera. Yeah. Moving the scanner during moving the scan. The sc moving the scanner during the scan. And of course, what happens and how fast you move it, you know, all, you know, all the elements that come into play, every single aspect of it became fascinating because every, every move you made generated different visual 
opportunities, different visual effects. And I, it, it was like, it was like I had, it was like I was back at the Corcoran in 1987 again, going into the wet darkroom for the first time. I was like, this is, a, I have a whole new set of possibilities here, not only from a conceptual standpoint, but from a technical standpoint that totally drives my work in a way that I am still, you know, I'm still investigating and having a great time with. Okay. From, and super technical. Cause again, like I geek out on this stuff sure. a little bit. What scanner do you use for this? Because, well, the reason why I ask is because like, there are different sort of, of course, qualities of scanners, but also there's the, there, there's, you could even do like the negative scanners, like the ones that have like scan beds on both sides. You could open that up and do something right. very unique with that, I'm sure. So like, that's why I'm wondering, like, what are you using to do this? Well, at the moment, I have three different scanners. They're all Epson scanners at the moment. They go from, I guess it's like the V600 to the, the V850. Those are not lightweight scanners. They're not. No, they're heavy. Uh, and I'm moving. You know, I, like I said, I'm a backpack and I move them around. You know, I have a, a variety of them because they all are different. They all have different qualities. They react to being put upside down or sideways or vertically or what have you in very different ways. They read information very differently depending on on that. And they get damaged. I mean, I have to be honest, you know, they, the glass gets scratched. But then, I, you know, again, it's back to the like, oh, I just screwed up my my scanner. It's, it's ruined. I was like, wait a minute. No, it didn't. Now I've got, now it's just, it's part of it now. It's just part of what happens. It's part of what it looked yeah. like. It's like a light leak in a Holga. It's like yeah. a light leak in a Holga. Exactly. And it, yeah, it's so nice to talk to a photographer that uh, understands these things. Yes. And so though all of that became part of it and I realized to just go with it. And so I have a, uh, a multiple, I've got three different scanners at the moment. I've got my hands, uh, getting ready to have my hands on once I can travel again. I've got someone who's got a four or five scanners that they're taking offline that I can have that I'm going to test and use. And I, it's just a matter of, of of seeing what they'll do. They all, I mean, even the same kind of scanner, depending on what you do to it can be different, you know? Yeah. I mean, cause like I'm thinking through like all the different brands of scanners I've ever used and they all render things slightly differently. So like, I mean, it's, it's much like choosing a digital camera these days or in the old days, choosing the right film for your shot kind of thing to make sure you get the right results. And you know, the, the thing I love about what I started becoming more and more kind of keyed in on and became kind of conceptually kind of liberating for me was thinking about the fact that the scanner is, is, is a, it is a camera, but it's a camera in reverse in what you normally are thinking because a digital camera under normal circumstances is receiving light, but the scanner is actually emitting light, you know, to, to read information. And that's how it reads it. It reads whatever the light it emits catches. And of course, the other thing I loved about the scanner is that something I always was a big fan of is depth of field and depth of field on a scanner is about, you know, a 10th of an inch. I mean, it's literally barely off the face. So all that comes into play when you're thinking about how you're going to use it, how, what, what you're going to photograph, how you're photographing it. And then also understanding that the light, the kind of light that you're photographing in is getting mixed between artificial light from the scanner and the natural light from the world, the natural world, you're getting all sorts of different things that you never would have thought, you know, you never would have been able to get otherwise, but they correlate with, if you're a wet darkroom, grounded in the wet darkroom, like you learned in the wet darkroom as well, the cork, and it was still existing at the time, still primary. Absolutely. You understand that there's correlations in the wet darkroom for the same kind of 
of things. You know, the enlarger, in a sense, the enlarger was the, you know, was a camera too in reverse. It, it was, you know, projecting light, but it was, you were, you were projecting your image onto this piece of paper. Whereas the scanner is, was basically like an enlarger and a camera in one. It was doing projecting the light, but it was also receiving the information. And all that became really like, okay, now I'm kind of, this is what I've always been interested in, which is the mechanics of photography, like what constitutes making photographs in the, in the 21st century now, since now it used to be only one way, you know, which was ne ne positive, negative, that was photography. Now, all of a sudden, there's who, I mean, that's what the whole argument is, is what what is photography right now? How do you define it? And my point is, who cares? <laughs> well, I mean, in the most fundamental ways, I still say photography is you, anything using light-sensitive materials. Yeah, my only addendum to that would be photography is is the uh, is the manipulation of time and light. Yeah, yeah, I'll go with that. Together, and and then so for me, the scanner provides both those things in a physical way, like in a, in a way that I'm actually tangibly engaged in. I can see the light being emitted, and I can feel the time because it is not 500th of a second. It is eight minutes, <laughs> you know, 10 minutes. And so I'm actually able to, to make time very malleable in a way that I had lost touch with in my work in the last few years. I've been, again, been able to understand how time and light does define photography and what I feel makes photography interesting and in that it interacts with an actual object. You know, it actually has to interact with something in the real world to be something. Whether it's representational or not, it still has to react and interact with something. Uh, whereas as a painter and a drawing and sculpture, you can, you can purely be made out of your materials. Whereas as a photographer, you have to engage in your environment. You have to engage in where you, you, know, where you are in that moment to actually make something. That's how I feel about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been in the past, I don't know, six, seven years, I've been sort of weighing away from the sort of very, very traditional photography. I'm now doing like uh, decoupage style sort of painting and layering of, of tissue paper over photographs and nice. sort of creating this very sort of uh, skin like sort of translucent materials over top so that you're seeing less and less of the true photograph like i i reached a point where i was i was i was building photographs you know i was like uh, hiring models going to locations d designing custom wardrobe hiring you know blah, blah 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 like going over the top building this thing and then i suddenly realized i was like well how much of like i've built all that but how much of that can i strip away and still express the essence of the idea right Right. No, sometimes it's getting back to basics, right? Sometimes it's back mm -hmm. to getting back to what, what brought you to it to begin with. And that's, I feel like, again, like what's happened to me in the last, I, I started this body of work in January, right as, and then in February, you know, the, I'm not saying there's anything positive about the pandemic, but what happened was, is I had a self-imposed residency, artist residency that happened. I was like, yeah, you had tons of time. I had tons of time and I couldn't, I couldn't run revolve. Uh, and in a way that was a blessing in disguise because my time had been really absorbed by, by those responsibilities. And so I had like a, almost a, an, a, a forced imposed residency from March till May. And during that period of time, I was able to do 
you know, have a, have, have a kind of studio practice that I had watched other people have for the last seven years. All right. Is there any sort of last thing you want to touch on anything, um, anything that you're going to be doing in the future that you want to promote or anything like that? Hemp is going to have, they're developing new models to deal with this uh, situation right now where they've decided to open up their space and have five solo shows, like five small solo shows within the space and then do a bunch of online programming around each show so that then, then people can come in to the gallery and see five different, you could see five little shows within one big space. And I, I think I'll be working on something like that in the fall. And then I've got two print editions coming out. One just came out Tuesday from Hempill. And then a second one's going to come out through Tracy Morgan Gallery here in Asheville. And th- that work is actually work that was made. I don't know if you've seen any of that in the writing I did around it, but it's work that I made while I was waiting initially for the, the scanner work to finish. So I would be on the lane on the ground in the, in the forest waiting for this to finish. And I look up and started realizing that there was a, a visualness out there that I wasn't paying attention to because I was so focused on what was going on on the ground. And I started photographing straight up from the floor with my phone. I started taking uh, phone images that I ended up translating into these small prints that kind of showed what I was looking at while I was waiting for what I thought was my real work to finish. Oh, that's funny because I saw those, the ones looking up at the sky through the trees, and I thought you had come up with some amazing technique to do that with a scanner. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, oh my God, how is he getting that with a scanner? Yeah. No, that's not, uh, no way. As you know, the, the depth of field from the scanner is about a tenth of an inch. And some no, no, I've <laughs> seen people use scanners as cameras. I've seen and where they get full depth of field like a photograph. I don't know how they do it, but they do it. They stitch, they stitch a bunch of them together. You know, I like, uh, actually, someone who does that really, really wonderfully is Ann Rowland, who also shows or has shown at Hempel. She does a body. She's been doing this for Fran, Franz Jansen, also who is in DC. These are two photographers that I've seen who will stitch images together to create a replica. Well, not even a replication, a kind of hyper real sense of what the space really looks like. Yeah, uh, it has like and like you can zoom in on a pine needle, uh, and it's as sharp as the whole vista of the sky because each square foot of the image is, you know, scanned separately scanned separately and then stitched together. Oh, wow. That changes my whole perspective on that work. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, I'm, I'm sure that's a little bit of how that's done. Yeah. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in two months, dude, I can check in. I know. <laughs> Seriously. I know. <laughs> Okay, well, let's just wrap this up. So thank you very much for taking the time to catch up with me. It's been 20 years since we've seen each other. So, you know, this has been really nice. Oh, and hopefully incredible. hopefully, I'll get back to North Carolina. I actually plan on getting back to North Carolina sometime soon, actually. but uh, I hope you will. I mean, I, I'm oddly, I wish I had known or had, had, uh, we'd had this conversation. I was in Prague two years ago. Oh, so was I. Yes. And I, that was my second time in Prague. My first time in Prague was uh, after I graduated from the Corcoran in 1990. So I was actually there. Changed a lot. Oh, yeah. When I was there in 1990, it was right after the, the Re- Velvet Revolution. Mm-hmm. And I saw the Rolling Stones play in Prague oh, yeah. at the largest outdoor football stadium in Eastern Europe. And that was incredible. But Prague in 1990 is, had had to be very different than it. And it, well, it was when I was there two years ago, it was like, it was like 
it was basically like a huge version of what happened to Asheville. Prague in 1990 was like Asheville in 1980, whatever. Everything boarded up. People having a great time, but it was just DIY all over the place. Fast forward to Prague 2018. It was like, it was like going into Disneyland. <laughs> it's like, it's, I mean, absolutely gorgeous, insane, beautiful Disneyland, but there was just, it was like a, it was like walking down the street pre pandemic. It was like, you, it was like walking in, it was like New York on the side, you know, New York before the oh, pandemic. Oh, yeah. Downtown Prague in the, the historic district is quite packed. It's insane. I did, this time around, I got to do something I'd always wanted to do. I didn't do the first time, which is I got to go to Joseph Sudek's last studio apartment that's up mm-hmm. way up on the hill there. And, and there was a, a there's a little cafe just down the street, the Rilke, the Rilke Cafe. I don't know if you know it. Yep. And that was just a, a lovely afternoon that I did two years ago. Yeah, I didn't realize uh, Sudek, the, the sort of figure, he's still alive and producing He's now more of a bit of a painter at this point, ah, but he but he's still he's still making. That's like, incredible. I, I know because like I remember seeing his work at the Corcoran actually. Yes. Oh yeah. Like, I remember some professor, probably Frank, bringing in books of Saudex, and I was just like, oh my gosh! Like, and now I'm here, and he's still alive, and he's on Instagram. Are you serious? <laughs> just, yeah, I'm yeah, gonna look yeah. him up. Okay, that's that's yeah. Saudek and Sudek, of course, they were like night and day yep. as far as their practice. absolutely. But uh, yes. both of them were very formative for me uh, as a student. Mm-hmm. Indeed. My other Frank DePerna story was that. For year, like the last year I was there, I started working with text and image, and he just kept railing on me. He was like, "You shouldn't use text. Text is horrible. Text is a crutch. You're being lazy by putting text with your images." Blah blah blah, and I and I was just like, "No, but blah blah blah," and like I I kept trying to defend myself again and again and again and again, and he just hated my work that I was using text <laughs> and image. And about ten years later. I, as when I was teaching and I had students wanting to do text and image, I was just like, no, that's lazy. That's a crush. <laughs> like, I literally said his words out of my mouth in my classroom. And I had the chance to go back and apologize to him about that. Oh, nice. And I told him, I was like, you know, I actually caught myself doing exactly what you did. And you were completely right about my work. And I'm sorry I was such an ass. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah. So so I did give him the, the the satisfaction of knowing that he was right ten years later. Cool. That's 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 very unusual in our life to, to be able to get to do that. So cool. <laughs> Indeed. All right. I've got to go on. My wife gets angry when these go too long. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I hope this was oh. Thank you. What are you talking about? Like, why are you thanking me? Thank you. you- it's, fun. it's fun to be able to talk to a uh, fellow photographer and someone who has a kind of similar history. Ugh, you should listen to my one with Jock Sturges. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll have to listen to that one. That one I'll get back to listen to.